Amen. The book of Psalms 126. Psalm 126, verse 6. Amen. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You may be seated. I want to speak to you on praying for a spiritual harvest. Uh, As a guest today, or maybe a newcomer to Atlanta West, you may feel like you're sitting in at a very strategic family time when we are kind of gathering around a concept that really makes God's work work in a church. There are a lot of churches that are what are called nominal churches or nominal Christians. They are Christians in name only, churches in name only. But God's church in the earth uh, is on mission, and it is God's mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's our mission right now, really year-round, but now there's a special emphasis of the Spirit on this in our church. I wrote an article about it in the April Messenger, preached about it last Sunday, planting for a spiritual harvest. If you happen to be out of town last Sunday... We have a lot of folks on spring break last week, this week. Seems like it lasts for about a month this time of the year. Uh, so you can really preach the same sermon every Sunday, you know, and you get a little bit of a different audience. But we're not going to do that. But we're in a season of encouraging you, our church family, to pray and plant for a spiritual harvest. And part of this equipping of our church uh, will take place Wednesday night. Brother David Jury, our pastor of discipleship, is going to be teaching into his marvelous light Bible study. And everyone here will get a copy, have the opportunity of following along, filling in the blanks, not just for yourself, but to train you to teach other people. It is very simple to sow a seed to save a soul. That was my message last Sunday, if you happen to miss it. So we want to equip you to be able to do that. Last Sunday, I preached from Mark 4.26. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of God is as a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. This is an agricultural illustration, of course, set in the Middle East. And it's speaking about growing wheat or barley or some type of grain. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, that sharp object of cutting the grain because the harvest has come. That's what we're praying for. Our job as Christians is to take the seed of the Word of God and simply plant it in the lives of other people by our testimony, by literature, by teaching a Bible study. It may just be an invitation to church from a business card. Someone sent me this this week that they had read in a place of business. My job is to plant seeds. God's job is to grow them. We are in a partnership with God as His church. So we're not here to complicate the gospel, but simply sow a seed to save a soul. That's what Jesus did When he came to earth, he taught clear, simple truth that was understandable to people 
with a hungry heart. So all you need to do is tell your story, what you were before, and how you came to God, and how your life has changed since you found Jesus Christ as your Savior. Show the love of God to lost people wherever you go, to everyone you see, simply sow a seed. I met a young man today who was at our first service at 9 o'clock. He was working at the car wash yesterday when one of our members went and invited him to church. And a simple invitation allowed that young man to come and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sow a seed to save a soul. It's really that simple. Amen. Now our Bible is filled with agricultural illustrations. We like to say that they lived in an agrarian age and mostly people earn their living in farming. We don't earn our living that way, but we kind of stay alive because of people who grow food for us. We will always live in an agricultural society or else we will cease to exist. So the first component that I spoke about last Sunday was planting a seed, sow a seed to save a soul. But there's a second component that I want to talk to you about today that is equally, if not more important, and that is the dimension of prayer. Praying over the seed you have sown and praying for people that God would bring them to salvation. People do not just exist in a neutral place waiting for someone to share the gospel. The Bible said that if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the eyes of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine to them. So planting the seed, but then watering it with prayer, brings about a transformation that opens the spiritual eyes of a lost soul. And it is probably the most spiritual and powerful component of praying and planting. Psalm 126, I read to you uh, today, is a pretty powerful psalm. It's set at the very end of the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel, the people of God, carried away for 70 years. And they're on the verge of a breakout and a breakthrough back to their home country. And so God is preparing them, giving them hope, encouraging them, instructing them. They've been there for 70 years, a generation of people in captivity. And when they heard the news that they were now free to return to their land, the Bible said that they were like them that dream. It was just too good to be true. They couldn't wrap their brain around the idea that they could walk out of Babylon, travel back to Israel, and take up where they left off. They were there for 70 years because of their disobedience to God. They had not allowed the land to rest every seven years. For 490 years, they plowed and planted the land every year. They overtaxed the land. And the Lord said, He had told them in Leviticus this would happen if they disobeyed Him. So after 490 years of ignoring God's principle of letting the land rest every seven years, God said, enough. You're going to go into captivity and the land will enjoy her Sabbaths. So it just lays there, 70 years. Nothing has been planted. Weeds are growing up. Wild animals are taking over. 
What used to be fertile farmland is now growing up and is waiting for the time when God would release his people to come back and pick up the process where they left off. So you can imagine, 70 years. They're nervous about how this is going to happen. They don't have years of seed saved up from previous sowing and harvesting. So the Bible tells us that that seed was precious. It was, it was really rare. And so that's the picture of Psalm 126. It is of a farmer going back to Israel, cultivating the land all over again. And the Lord is giving him hope to know that if you will do what I've asked you to do, that there will be a harvest. He wants the nervous, reluctant farmer to be willing to commit the seed to the soil so they can, there can be an abundant harvest. So he tells them, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Maybe tears of repentance for the 70 years that you've wasted. Maybe tears of worry about whether or not this is going to work this time. Tears of anticipation. But the Lord is telling them, if you will sow in tears, you will reap in joy. He, he knows that they're worried about what's going to happen to the seed. Maybe it will be too cold or too hot or no rain or too much rain. Or maybe hordes of locusts will come. Or bands of pillagers will come. There's so many things that can happen to rob you of the harvest. But the Lord says, I want you to just sow in tears. And if you will, you will reap in joy. So here's a picture he gives them. He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious. It means rare. There's not a lot of seed left. Bearing precious seed. Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He plants a seed and he reaps a harvest. This is kind of how it goes. He's out in the field. He's planting seed. He's weeping, sort of watering symbolically the seed with his prayer. And he's praying, God, if you don't make this work, it's not going to work. Seventy years we've been in captivity. How do I know that this time sowing is going to be blessed by God. But here he is. He sows the seed and he goes to sleep and wakes up as we talked about that farmer last week. And in a couple of days, he looks out in his field and poking through the sod, the ground, is a little tender green shoot peeking up through the soil. And a little bit of hope is born in his heart. And it's not too hot. It's not too cold. The rain is just right. And so it begins to grow. And there is a stalk. And then he looks and and a head of grain begins to form on the stalk. It's green and immature, but, but this is working this time. And over the process of the sowing and plant watering season, he watches and, and that green head of wheat begins to turn golden and ripe. And he is so excited that what God promised would happen has really happened. He goes back to the barn. He's got his sickle there that he's been sharpening that instrument that harvests the wheat by hand. He goes out in the field and he cuts down those stalks. He ties them into bundles, which the Bible calls sheaves. And now he brings them back into his barn. When he went out, he was crying and sowing precious seed. 
But now he's coming back with rejoicing and he's got bundles of harvest in his arms, more than he can carry because this is the promise of the word of God. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's how it works, my dear brothers and my sisters. You just pray and you plant and you plant and you pray and you trust God, amen, that he is working with you. Amen. It really, really works for this farmer. He goes forth weeping and he comes back with sheaves rejoicing. You see what happens is this farmer is in a partnership with God. He really is. Now think about this. God doesn't really need any of us. He's sovereign. But he's chosen to engage in a partnership with us. Remember back in the Garden of Eden? The Bible tells us that God planted a garden, but then he put the man in the garden to dress it and to keep it. Now think about this. Why would God do that? He could have planted a a self-sustaining garden that didn't need anybody to take care of it. He's God after all. He can do whatever he wants. Or he could have said, Adam, I want you to just chill and rest. I'm going to create angelic gardeners. They're going to come take care of everything in the garden. All you have to do is enjoy life. But God does not do that. He puts Adam in a garden and he gives him a job because it has always been God's way to be a partner with people. He wants you to join him and be a laborer together with God. That's really what planting and praying does. Prayer is entering into a partnership with God. Now some people think, that God doesn't need your prayers. He's sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. So you can't really affect the outcome. So why bother to pray if God can do whatever He wants? But I remind you that God has always invited us to engage in a strategic spiritual partnership with Him. Amen. Some other people think that prayer kind of commands God. That when we pray, we tell God what to do. That's really not what prayer is. And by the way, no man or woman invented prayer. No one sat down one day and kind of mapped it out and wrote it out and said, I think I'll invent a way for people to talk to God and we'll call it prayer. That's not how it happened. From the beginning of time, God chose to walk in the garden in the cool of the day to talk with Adam and Eve. We don't know the content of their conversation, but God invented prayer as a method of you talking to Him and partnering with Him about what He wants to do in the earth. Amen. Prayer is a strategic partnership with God. It was God's idea that you can ask and receive, you can seek and find, you can knock and it shall be opened unto you. You pray according to the will of God and we know that we have the things we ask for when we pray according to the Bible which reveals the will of God. 
Prayer allows you to walk into the presence of the most powerful being in the universe and he can supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Why would you not want to pray when you have access to an almighty God who loves you? Amen. He invited us to pray. Let me give you an example of this partnership. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Jesus tells his disciples, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. We've got thousands and thousands of acres of grain, golden in the fields, and in time they will turn white, and then they will turn loose, and the harvest will be lost. The harvest is plenteous, but Jesus said, the laborers, that's the problem. There are not enough people working in my fields. Now, if you read the context of this, Jesus is talking about people, not grain. That there are many people ready to come into the kingdom of God, but the problem is there's not enough laborers out there to take that sickle and bring them into the kingdom of God. The laborers are few. What's to be done? God is sovereign. Why doesn't God just send more laborers? But look what Jesus does. Look at this verse on the screens. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It is the will of God for there to be more people reaching lost people with the gospel. God came to save them from their sins. So why does he need to ask you and me to pray about something he already wants done? It is because he has always given us the privilege of partnering with him in his great work of redemption. So I'm here today to tell you that we must pray for a spiritual harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest. It is the will of God. It is through prayer that the will of God is always accomplished. Amen. He does it through his people and through prayer. Paul tells us this in his writings about ministries and some uh, plant and some water, but God gives the increase and everybody receives a reward for their role in this harvest. But he said, we are all doing this as laborers together with God. We're laborers together, but it's not just you and me. It's you and me and God. What a partnership. What if you were going into business and you had an opportunity to bring a multi-billionaire on board who was willing to resource your business with every imaginable need? Well, our God has more power and more resources than the most wealthy person in the world. Amen. Prayer is a partnership with God. Amen. Prayer is successful when we pray according to the will of God. Praying and planting. You got it? Now, there are all kinds of prayer. There's a prayer that most of us love 
which goes something like this. Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God says, how can I bless a chili dog? Their prayers for our needs. We should, we should ask. He knows what we have need of. Before we even ask, we petition God for the needs of our life. The Lord's Prayer. We pray for our daily bread, right? We pray that we would not enter into temptation. So there are all forms of prayer. And there's praying in the Spirit. But specifically, when it comes to this idea of praying for a spiritual harvest, it is a prayer of intercession. Now, intercession means to intervene on behalf of another person. It is to go to God on behalf of another person. Amen. It is to be a mediator, a go-between, to stand between the problem and the solution and to try to bring them together. Sometimes, When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit makes intercession for you according to the will of God. Abraham was a great man and he's the father of the faithful, right? Well, God is getting ready to go down and destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he said, you know, I've got to tell Abraham, he's my friend. He's going to command his children after him. So the Lord and angels go down and they talk to Abraham And they tell Abraham that they're going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels go on their way, but the Bible said that Abraham stands before the Lord. And he says, you know, God, I know that you're the judge of the earth and that you're going to do right. And I know that you would never destroy the righteous with the wicked. So, Lord, what if you could find 50 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you spare the cities for for 50 righteous? And God said, I will. Abraham must be thinking about that. And he's like, man, that's a really bad city. I'm not sure I can find 50 righteous people. So he goes back to God again. He's the father of the Jewish people. And he says, Lord, why don't we lower the price a little bit? 45 souls. If I can find 45 righteous people, will you spare the cities? And the Lord says, sure. The Lord doesn't say sure, but if you look in the Hebrew, it's something like that, I imagine. 45. Abraham says, you know, God, uh, I'm really sorry to ask you again, but, but, you know, what if we could only find 40? Would you spare the cities for 40? And the Lord said, I will. And Abraham thinks about it again. He said, you know, I'm not sure there's 40 righteous people in all of those cities. And he goes back to God again. He said, Lord, what about 30? And the Lord says, yes. And Abraham asks again, what about 20? And God says, yes. And finally, Abraham, his final offer, God, if I can find 10 righteous people, if you can find 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare them? And God says, yes, Abraham, I will for 10. What is Abraham doing? Here is God the judge. Here is a wicked city, twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is standing between the judgment of God and sinful people. And he's saying, God, will you, will you spare the city, spare the city? He is in the role of an intercessor going to God on behalf of other people. 
Now we know that there were not ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities were destroyed and only righteous Lot barely escapes. He's barely righteous. But he is called righteous. Abraham stands between God and judgment and he intercedes. Moses did a similar thing. The leader of God's people in Israel. They've been worshiping a golden calf. They've been participating in immoral acts. But Moses goes to God. He tells the people, first, you've sinned, but I'm going to go talk to God for you. He goes before the Lord. And he said, Lord, I know my people have sinned a great sin. But Lord, I pray that you would blot out their transgression. And he said, Lord, if you will not forgive them, then I want to ask something of you. If you're going to destroy them, God, then take me out too. Blot my name out of the book that you have written. What an intercessor to stand between God and judgment and say, Lord, would you please give them another chance? That's what Moses did when he prayed. Paul in the New Testament said, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Intercession Prayer and planting work together. But it is prayer that stands between the judgment of God and between a sinner and says, God, would you turn their heart to you? Give them another chance. In the book of Joel, the Lord calls for a prayer meeting. He said, I want you to uh, blow the trumpet in Zion. Call a solemn assembly. Consecrate a fast. Bring everybody there. I want all the elders, all the children. I want you to bring the babies that are still nursing. If there's a bridegroom in his chamber, tell him to come. If there's a girl getting ready to be married in her dressing room, tell her, stop, come. In other words, in Joel, the situation is so urgent and so desperate that God says, Hold everything. I don't care who you are or what you're doing or where you are. It is time right now to pause for prayer. And then Joel, the Lord through Joel says, I want the priests to weep between the porch and the altar and pray that God would spare his people. I want you to see this. The porch is where the people gathered before the Lord, and that's as far as they could go. But inside the doors of Zerubbabel's temple, built after the pattern of Solomon's temple, there the priests would go, and there was a court there between the door and the altar that was where the sacrifice was killed and offered to God as a burnt offering. In this area there, there was a court where the priests would make intercession for the people. And God says, I want every priest to stand between the place of sacrifice and atonement and between sinful people. And I want them to reach in prayer and say, God, spare 
my people. Lord, have mercy on the people. Don't let them be destroyed in your wrath because of their sin. And today, Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, I'm calling for you to position yourself between the altar and a lost man or woman and say, God, would you give them another chance? I stand here today as Abraham between the angels of judgment and Sodom and Gomorrah. I stand here today as Moses between God and Israel. I stand here today between the porch and the altar and I say, God, give them a chance to be saved. Reaching out to God with one hand and reaching to a lost person with another to say, God, spare my family. Lord, spare my neighbors. Spare my co-workers. Oh God, spare my people. This kind of prayer, this depth of prayer, this agonizing work like plowing and planting and working in a garden. But it is essential to the success of a spiritual church. For if there is no praying and there is no planting, there is no harvest. As a church, we must engage in not just in petitionary prayer where you ask God for stuff, but we need people in this congregation who will rise up to a place of prayer and say, spare our nation, spare our state, spare our city, oh God. I am here as an intercessor. Say, well, that's that's pretty heavy stuff. It's really heavy stuff. What have you been worrying about lately? What's been on your mind that you talk about and you gripe about and you are concerned about and even, even you pray about? You pray about our country in an election year. You pray about the future of democracy, about the freedom of religion, Second Amendment rights, the state of the economy, abortion and all the agendas that are going on. Are you praying and worried about the condition of the morals of our country? Maybe the war on terror. There's lots There are a lot of things to be worried about in 2016. Lots of things. But the thing that concerns me most is not what's going to happen in November or January. I read an article by the CEO of J.P. Morgan who says in 10 years, he kind of foresees this country going into a major economic crash He said, I don't think anything is going to stop us because nobody's alarmed right now. We're robbing from the future, paying for the present. Like many people are spending their kids' inheritance, our country is spending the money that belongs to the next generation. That's where we are. But that doesn't concern me the most. It's not whether or not my grandson Lincoln and and Rhett, my other grandson, they're going to have a good living or a country. What concerns me most, it's what's going to happen one moment after the moment when Jesus Christ comes back for his church. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The Bible clearly teaches the society's rocking along, good and bad, ebb and flow, 
fear and complacency, revival and apathy. But one day, God will say, I am ready to call my people home. And in a moment, just like that, faster than you can say Jesus, faster than you can repent, faster than you can run to the altar, God is going to take His people out of here and it's all going to be over for salvation for all of us. And the reason I'm preaching like this, instead of how to balance your budget, which is important, and many, many other practical needs that we all have, because the thing that concerns me most that it seems that it concerns God more than anything, is what's going to happen the moment after that moment. But right now, you have an opportunity, and I have an opportunity to pray for a spiritual harvest. So I want to ask you today, just for a few moments, I want you to kind of take off your selfish self and put it to the side. Whatever's on your mind this week, whatever you need to happen this week, and you've been thinking about, maybe even preoccupied about, would you take a moment and just kind of lay that aside? And would you join me standing between the porch where people gather and the altar where atonement is implemented? And would you begin to pray with me now, God, spare the lost in my world. Would you join me right now in praying? Amen. Just bow your head with me and would you lift your voice? I want to see if anybody here today still knows how to pray intercessory prayer. I think you do. Why don't you lift your voice and talk to God? That's it. Lift your voice to the Lord and say, Spare my people, O God. Oh, Lord God, I stand at a place between the porch and the altar. In the name of Jesus Christ today. In the name of Jesus Christ today. I pray, oh God, for the people, Lord Jesus, in my world that I don't even know. That's it. Would you lift your voice now? calling for you to stand in a place of intercession of devout prayer in the name of Jesus Christ that you would reach out to the Lord and you would systematically commit to prayer for sinners who are on their way to an eternity separated from God. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Would you please look this way just another moment. In 1929, my my grandparents were married down in Miami, Florida. But they were not saved people. My grandmother was raised in a denominational church. My grandfather was just an unregenerate pagan guy. 
newlywed people, and for five years they just kind of lived their lives. But in 1935, there was a tent revival down in Miami, Florida. Earl Gamble and D.L. Welch were preaching. And my great-grandmother, Eliza Ann, went to church. And she was miraculously saved by the power of God. Next came Blanche, her daughter. Blanche went to church. That tent meeting and Blanche repented of her sins, received the gift of the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. My grandfather said, not interested, not going to church. He's told me a few things in his latter years about before Christ, how he was. He's a pretty rough guy. But there were people who were praying for him. And the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him enough to make him miserable. He told me I couldn't sleep at night. I was miserable. I was under so much conviction for my sins and knew I needed to get right with God. He finally went to church in that tent revival, but he would stand just outside. He wasn't going in. He didn't need God or want God. But somebody didn't just plant a seed. They were praying. And because they prayed, his heart was moved and his eyes were open. And at about 30 years of age, 35 years of age, somewhere in that little range, I'm sorry, I know, but I, he was saved. And when he was, he began to walk with God. And when my grandfather died at the age of 100, my mom is here today that refreshed this story to me last night. He died in the faith. Because the prayers prayed in 1935 stuck in James O. John's. It saved him miraculously. I wonder who in this house today could tell me that you were once lost, but you know that somebody prayed for you and you just couldn't get rest till you got right with God. Would you lift your hand? Anybody here was like that? No, you didn't think you wanted God, but somebody wouldn't give up on you. Somebody was standing between the porch and the altar and saying, spare my son. Spare my son. Bring him back to you, God. He's a backslider, but save him. Many of us are here today only because someone prayed. So here's what we're going to do. I'm asking you to gather with me at this altar in a moment. And I'm asking some of you who know how to pray to really pray. And not just today at church. But would you make an altar in your home or somewhere in your life? And would you become an intercessor with me? Would you join me and would you become a partner with God? Not just planting seed, that's part of the process. But we need some people in this church who would re-engage or engage in intercessory prayer to pray for a spiritual harvest. Would you stand and would you please join me right now here at the altar. If you would come, just begin to make your way down here to a place of prayer. Maybe you know what it is to pray till your stomach hurts. To pray till you're almost nauseated with the burden. To pray till it was groanings that cannot be uttered. There's somebody here today you're not saved But you've been miserable because you know the prayers 
of a granny somewhere. The prayers of somebody in your past has never given up on you. Maybe that person's dead, but their prayers are still alive and they're calling you back to the foot of the cross. They're calling you back to a place of repentance. Would you come now? I'm asking the church family to engage with me in prayer. That's it. Move as close as you can. Make room in the aisles. Let's move to a place of prayer. That's it. Weep. Weep between the porch and the altar. Spare, oh God. Spare. My people, oh God. You can pray. 